listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In looking through the library of past Grief Out Loud episodes, I realized there aren't that many with guests talking about the death of a sibling. There's maybe seven of them out of 259. I don't really know why that is. I mean, as an only child, I'm super curious about sibling relationships, because when I was a kid, they looked terrifying, as I mostly witnessed a lot of my friends fighting and being supremely annoyed with one another. But as I've grown older, it's fascinating to see two adults who grew up together, often sharing a house or even a bedroom, interact as friends, family, still kind of annoying the heck out of each other. Siblings can be the other half of our earliest memories. The only other people who knew exactly what it felt like in your house as a child, watching parents and other adults do what adults do. Now, I know that not every childhood sibling relationship grew into a close connection as adults, so there are lots of layers to siblinghood. Do you say siblinghood? Anyway, Kelly S. Thompson is a sister. She's also a sister who's grieving a sister. Kelly's older sister, Megan, and I say older, not big, because Kelly was more than a foot taller than Megan, died of cancer almost five years ago. When Kelly was born, Megan was a toddler, and Megan was also going through cancer treatment. Even in that, Megan was so, so excited to have a little sister. As kids, they were close, with Megan serving as Kelly's protector and constant, as they moved a lot as military kids. As a teen, Megan started using drugs, and it got really, really rough. Kelly had to distance herself from Megan, and their relationship disintegrated. As young adults, though, they reconnected, slowly, when Megan stopped using. They worked to rebuild trust and repair their relationship. And then, on the day that Megan gave birth to her second child, they both got devastating news. Kelly found out she couldn't have children of her own, and Megan was diagnosed with cancer, a cancer that would take her life in less than two years. Kelly became Megan's primary caregiver, going with her for treatments, staying by her side at the hospital, and being there for Megan's last days and hours. Megan's death was brutal, and Kelly was left with so many intense memories and images, and also a heart that was cracked wide open. Kelly turned to her writing as a way to cope with all of it. Megan had made Kelly promise to write their story once she died, and Kelly kept that promise with her new book, Still, I Cannot Save You. Kelly, thank you for making time to be on Grief Out Loud, especially as you are in the midst of multi-country moving coming up in the next couple of days. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a bit hectic over here, Mm -hmm. but I'm really glad to be here. Well, I just had the like honor of finishing your memoir, Still, I Cannot Save You. And I think I read it in uh, like a day and a half, which is a record for me, because oh. if it's not an audiobook, it takes me a long time, but I just couldn't put your book down. So I'm really looking forward to talking more about that piece. 
Uh, but on Grief Out Loud, you know, we start with the person or the people that kind of bring us to this. And, you know, I was thinking as I read your book, I just did a webinar and it was called It's Complicated, Death and Grief in Estranged Relationships. And I was like, oh, I really wish I'd read your book before because I could just use it as the outline <laughs> for the whole webinar. Um but then I was like, oh, we need an extra part of that webinar that says like estranged relationships that also grapple with the idea of reconciliation before someone dies. So given all that, like, what do you want us to know about your sister, Megan? Yeah, my sister and I were really, really close. So I think the nice thing that Megan and I had was um, growing up, we were almost exactly three years apart. Megan had cancer as a, as a baby. Uh, so when I was born, she was still going through cancer treatment but she always wanted a sister. So, I mean, she looked after me. She did everything with me, included me in everything. And I was painfully shy. So I was chronically lonely. So if I didn't have my sister bringing me into things, I was by myself. But then she, as a teenager, she really got into drugs quite bad and a bunch of different kinds. Megan was one of those people who was always looking for people to love her. And she just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do if it included her. So we fractured for quite a long time. I don't think we spoke for, I mean, we spoke, but it was pretty intermittent and I had to sort of cut her out of my life for my own safety for about um, 15 years until she got diagnosed with cancer the day after giving birth to her daughter. So, but before that she had got clean and we really repaired our relationship through this really slow, beautiful, steady process. And in the end, even though losing her was such a such a kick to the gut, it was also like, oh, but look at the gift of being here with this person who brought me into the world in safety, and I'm going to watch her leave it in the same way with love. It's kind of amazing because you just took your book and like condensed it into like a 20 second <laughs> synopsis of your relationship and the how how the relationship with your sister Megan evolved from, you know, when you were kids until when she died, when you were both in your early to mid 30s. Can you say a little bit more about that process of reconciling as after she got sober, because I just think that there's such an arc in the narratives out there of if there's a disconnect in a relationship, there's like a one reconnecting moment where they sort of like brush aside most of the things. And then now we're great. And nobody talks about it ever again. And I'm like, that's not real life. And so just wondering, like, uh, what, yeah. what was more of the like, real aspect of that reconciliation? My parents would have loved for it to be like that fairy tale in which we, you know, my parents were always sort of forcing us to have this come back together moment. Uh, but I mean, as adults, we could not be in the same room because I was so mad all the time. Um, and yet at the same time, I was old, the older I got, the more I educated myself about addiction. The more I tried to understand, the more I talked to other people who struggled with addiction. I went to Al-Anon, I was reading books. I because I always took it as something personal that she chose drugs all the time over us. And of course, it's not that black and white, but sometimes the behavior makes it feel that way. So Megan stole a lot of money from us. She was constantly lying, not showing up for things. And it was hard. So my parents were quite willing and able to instantly forgive because of course she's their daughter but I really had distanced myself from her 
in fact, spoke against her in court. And when I did that, because she she was charged for stealing and doing drugs at a place that she worked, and my family was really upset with me because they had she'd done a bunch of things in the past that they kind of were trying to cover up for her. And Megan, Megan instead really saw it as this step towards her wellness. And she didn't say that at first, but she never, ever, ever punished me for distancing myself from her even when she could have, and it would have been fair to, because she did a lot of years of proving herself to me as someone I could rely on in my life before I finally really trusted that. And in all fairness, she must have had to come to that level of trust with me too, because I had pushed her away so, so purposefully. So we had a really slow process of at first her reaching out, offering to see how I was, calling me, actually calling and asking about me. And only once she was sober, but then she also became a mother. And I often think making a mother made Megan someone who thought about people other than herself, which wasn't her greatest strength as a person, even though I loved her. Um, She started asking how I was doing and what my life was doing. And um, it was a slow process over several years. She did have one apology night where she kind of said to me, look, you were just doing what you could and I was horrible to you. And I was like, and I was horrible to you. And I, you were just doing what you could. It was a moment of two adults recognizing flaws and pain in one another. And instead of punishing each other for it, saying it wasn't water under the bridge. That was what was funny. My parents never wanted to talk about it. Megan and I would talk about her addiction all the time. We would talk about the bad things she had done, the bad things I had done t- to her. And we embraced it as part of the magic that makes up the complexities of a relationship instead of treating it with sort of kid gloves where you don't really want to look it in its face. There's a lot of beauty to be found from rising up from failure, I think. That was a long answer to your question. (laughs) What's coming through is like what you both had to do to build trust with one another. And it sounds like there was, you know, repetitive, reliable action but also the uncovering, the unveiling, the investigating, the ruptures that occurred throughout your childhood and your adolescence and your, into your twenties. And I think it was hard too, because in a military family, we moved often or people moved away from us. So your sibling is the only person who remains your constant. And so when I lost her, I was so adrift. I just sort of, I often say like, you know, the whole title of the book, Still I Cannot Save You. I couldn't save her from her addiction. I couldn't save her from bad choices, just as me as much as we can't for anyone in our lives. Um, but it was recognizing that it wasn't my job, that Megan was her own person with her own uh, ability to make her own choices. And when we finally really started showing up for one another and sort of like tentative at first before we moved into, I, I think I write in the book, I had this one day where I realized I was really suffering with uh, my mental health and she was the one I wanted to call. And I went, Oh, here it is. Like, look at this, look at this moment. You know, that, that was pretty, that was pretty special. So you all make your way through this kind of arduous process of reconnecting and rebuilding a, a sister relationship. And then Megan finds out she has cancer again. She had it as a really young child and, what do you remember about that? And and what did hearing that news mean for you and your relationship? 
We were laughing a little bit at the time that we felt like we lived in a soap opera. Um, my husband at the time was deployed with the military for a year. So I'm without my spouse. On the same day she found out she had the cancer, I found out I couldn't have children. The kind of cancer she was diagnosed with was so rare that I think the day we found out, we knew it wasn't going to be good. Like this wasn't going to end well. I don't want to have that corny, oh, you sort of realize what matters kind of thing. But the way we clung to one another told me a lot about the work that we had done, the way we had shown up for one another, which at the end of the day, we just want people to show up and to really show up. And my sister was also um, a domestic violence victim. So there was a lot of domestic violence and abuse victim, I should say. There was a lot of layers to the grief because it was like watching the children and knowing, wondering what's going to happen to them and where that's going to go. And are they going to be safe and happy? And they're going to lose this effervescent, funny, loving person. Um, so when I really think about it, it was like, I couldn't bear to think about the next day. Everything had to be right now. I'm just doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this because as soon as I started to project forward, I would fall apart. And my, and because uh, my mother also has multiple sclerosis, my, both of my parents are also cancer survivors. There was a lot of leaning on me, which was something I was really proud to give, but I, it was also eating me alive. So I think that that was a year of just trying to get from one day to the next. From her diagnosis to her death, it was about 16 months. And it was just trying to keep my head above water. That's the only part I remember. And thank goodness I took notes or the book would have been for <laughs> all for hell. <laughs> what day is it? Where am I? <laughs> I mean, yeah, as I was reading the book, I was like, every chapter should just be titled survival mode. Chapter one, survival mode, chapter two. And, you know, wondering, Megan died in 2018. So we're at almost at the five-year mark of her death. And, you know, as you were talking about, like I was taking, you were taking, you were a primary caregiver, basically for Megan, you were helping your parents, you were doing it on your own because your spouse was overseas. What changed for you, if anything? Like, have you stepped out of survival mode? I guess is my question. Like, what does it feel like now? No, I don't. You know, I, I think it's the reason I'm still in therapy. I'm still in therapy every second week. I take my medication. I think because I've always struggled with anxiety and depression, survival mode is also sort of where I find home. This is this is how my body feel and my mind feel a lot of the time. Of course, it's different. But I think we sometimes have this idea too about grief. People who haven't really had to sit with grief, there's this, you know, the moving on idea or, you know, I mean, come on now. I'm just not. <laughs> it takes me out in the weirdest ways over the weirdest things. Our parents are quite young. You know, my parents are only 68. My mom, very shortly after Megan died, was mostly in a wheelchair and is now almost entirely confined to her wheelchair. I'm in the process of moving my parents out to my retirement property so that we can all be in the same place in a couple of years. 
even though they're so young, we are not a family of health. And I feel a lot of that weight because I'm the only one left, you know, it's just me, but I have a really great partner. Like my husband is pretty epic. I think the thing that feeds me though, I'm sounding quite down, 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 but I'm really fed by how lucky I was to have had such love and to continue to have it. I think I had this big fear when she was dying that it was over. Like she, once she's gone, it's done. And it, of course it's never done. The conversation continues forever. This book is my conversation to her. I write to her. I, I I kind of talk to her. I'm buoyed by the fact that I got to have this great love that I keep it with me always, that it's not this thing that I feel like I had to leave behind that instead it keeps me going forward every day and her children, you know, my sister's kids, my nephew's about to turn nine. Uh, my, my niece just turned six. So I have these other little beings where I think the legacy of their mom who didn't get to be in their lives for a very long time. I get to gift that to them in some way. And, um, I want to keep giving that to them in a million different ways. I just gave a huge sigh of relief because as you're reading your book, Still I Cannot Save You, it's not clear if you're going to be able to keep a relationship with Megan's two children because of the complications in her family. So I'm very relieved to hear that you still have a connection with them. It's limited uh, and not by my choice. And it's partly, you know, my husband's in the military, so we, we live several provinces away, but I still don't have a relationship with their father and he won't speak to me. Uh, and there's nothing I can do to change that. So, uh, I send killer birthday gifts and I, I mean, their, um, their grandmother who is their primary caregiver makes a lot of beautiful effort and is really good to those children. I mail them cards once a month. And when I do see them, usually, you know, when I'm visiting my parents, they they say these things that kind of kick in the heart. Like my nephew said, Auntie, you smell just like my mom. I thought, oh, you know, he, he's not smelled her in four years at that point. But he remembered, like, that's a thing you hold inside you somehow. And uh, I like the thought of being that. Or he said to me, Auntie, you're a much better singer than my mommy was. Then <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay, I'll, t- I'll take it, you know. Um, he did see my book when I went, when I was home, I was touring my book and he held it and he saw the picture of my sister at the back and, um, and he said, oh, that's my mom. I said, yeah, it is. And he, he was very suspicious as though I had published this in my basement and said, is this just one copy for grandpa or is it, <laughs> or, and I said, no, there's a lot of copies. And he asked me to save him one. And so I thought they'll come find me, you know, when they're older, they'll come find me. You mentioned a little bit back that, you know, the grief, well, one, I had to chuckle a little when you were like, I'm starting to sound so down. I'm like, we're on a grief podcast, like sort of the standard <laughs> here, <laughs> right, right? It's not our down, it's our people. normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned that, hmm. you know, grief takes you down in unexpected and sometimes the weirdest ways. And I wonder if you had an example of maybe a recent experience with that. I mean, I even have in the book, the grocery store undoes me. 
at the end of life, taking pleasure in the smallest things, you know, and she would give me these weird tasks. Like I want a drink, but I don't want it to be acidic and I don't want it to be dairy based and I don't want it to be fizzy. These criteria were so stressful, but I always found something for her. And in particular, it was for a long time, watermelon juice. I mean, still, I kind of put my hand up to walk past the juice. It's like, I, I can't look at these bottles of juice because I remember holding buckets of it coming back up. You know, it was the grocery store was like a place that I would go to just find anything that would bring her a little bit of joy, like a new lip balm or because it was close by and I didn't have to worry about just going quickly. So usually the grocery store is the place that really undoes me. I think I'm less attached to places and such because I've moved so often. There's no one place where Megan is. And I actually have her ashes. She's with me. Um, so because I also sit with her all the time and I don't, I mostly don't lean away from it. You know, it's funny, like we're a bit weird about grief, right? Like if we're crying and you feel quite weird and I, and I had joked, like I wanted a shirt that I wore that would say like, my sister died. This, And when you think about it, you know, we used to, in previous times, wear black to show that we were grieving for a year afterwards. And it was this symbol and I wanted a symbol. Now I just full on cry. And when people are freaked out, I just say, my sister died and they don't need to know when that was. And I just have my little meltdown and I'm fine with it. But I, you know, it's often when I have a real moment of joy that I miss her the most. And it doesn't make me sad because she's still the first person I want to call. Especially, you know, when I was mentioning Megan just wanted to be loved so badly but not by the kind of love I could give her. And so I just wanted to drench her in it. I just want, you know, when I think about while she was actively dying, like those last, oh, we, I think we just murmured, I love you over and over. Cause I thought I just want her to go out on those words. The thing that she was always looking for and never quite got. That's the part that breaks me. It's not necessarily that she died. It was the layers of suffering leading up to the death that were quite horrid. You write about those last, well, the last basically 16 months because her illness was very intense and devastating physically. How do you, or do you, or what do you do with the imagery and the sensory memories of those times when you were in the hospital with Megan when she was actively dying? I keep writing about it. I teach creative writing now for a master's program in creative nonfiction. I always encourage people to really sit with the hard moments. And it's hard to because we're we live a world in which we skirt conflict all the time because it's uncomfortable. And I've learned that when I skirt it, when I don't really let it settle into my bones, is when it comes back to haunt me. When I write about it, I feel like I'm gifting it to someone else to say, here's what you can expect. Because when she died, I, I have a, a part where she's like actively dying and I'm sort of obsessively researching on Google because I want to know what it's going to be like. And my mom was a nurse. So my mom's like, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And, and they're like these body details. But I wanted to know what my heart was going to do. 
what's this going to feel like? And what should I think of? And, and a lot of the grief memoirs I was reading were really skirting that moment of death. And yet I thought I have a line in there where it's something like, it's the most beautiful thing we're going to go to go through together. Cause it's the last thing we're going to go through together. And when grief is also part of life and dying is part of life, I thought I could gift this to someone. This was what I needed when she was dying. I was like trying to find out how to inoculate myself to how bad it was going to hurt. And while we can never do that, I at least can make someone feel less alone. So when I teach writing and when I do my own, I think if I can stay here in this really dark moment for a minute, then I can turn it up to the light and turn it around and look for that nugget of truth or that nugget of beauty. And I can find it for me or I can find it for someone else. But regardless, my sister had a small life and I can make it bigger for her in that way. It can have a bit of a ripple effect, a legacy. You know, every letter from a from a reader is a reminder that I say, who needs this? Why am I writing this? It's for whoever's going to need it. It's rarely for me. I mean, sure, I could write for myself in my journal, but I just keep writing. I keep writing because it's the only way I know how to keep going. And I do really believe in the transformative power that comes from sitting with a book. Like it's where I still find so much joy. And Megan loved to read and she asked me to write it. I sit with that too. It's a promise I made. So my writing is a promise. What did happen to your heart after all of your research of what was going to happen in the moment that she died? I learned my capacity to give was so much greater than I ever thought it was. Because I'm never going to be a mom, I used to have this sense that I was selfish or that I was not a good caregiver. I didn't expect Megan's death to teach me that I was, that I needed her death to teach me I was a good person, that I was willing to give so much for someone else for the happiness of, or to, you know, because I was her power of attorney and I was her executor, I had to do all the paperwork and my dad was really convinced it should be him. And, and I thought, oh, but this is a burden. My parents have lost their child. You know, this is a burden I can take off them. Or she wrote letters to the kids until she was 18 or till they were 18 for their birthdays. And she gave me all those to hold. So while sometimes it felt like this burden of responsibility for my family, I've realized my heart grew a million sizes. It was like the Grinch, you know? I I mean, Megan was always the really tender-hearted one, and I was always the really serious, practical one, which could be my former military life. It's hard to say. But I learned how tender I can be. And I've learned that the vulnerability that comes with really opening yourself up to being, because it's scary to be with someone who's dying. Um, It's anxiety inducing. It is stressful. I have so much more compassion for myself and for everyone else in the world since she died. It is unreal. Everyone who treats me like crap now, I go, what are they going through? Maybe they're really going through something. And I never used to do that. You know, That's partly age, but it's also partly this is what something that undoes you, does for you, is to say, sometimes we're all just trying to get from point A to point B. What did it do to my heart? It it broke it and put it together new again. And 
in a different way. It has a whole different construction now. And that's not bad. Do I sound like a Hallmark card? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be careful of not wandering into that territory. <laughs> but my nose is definitely running. Goodness. Well, we've talked a lot about how you loved Megan and how her death, you know, just grinched your heart right open. How did Megan love you? Mm. Without judgment. I judged her endlessly in a way that gives me such a deep sense of shame. Megan welcomed everyone into her heart so fully and beautifully. I, I told her once she was like a dog and I didn't mean it in a bad way, in a way that she was so loyal to, and, and, and she had learned what it took her death for me to learn, which was that everyone's just going through something. She had that wisdom long before me. Megan loved, loved me in a way that was, she was always my greatest champion. I mean, truly, like whatever I wrote, it was the best thing she'd ever read in her entire life. And I was her favorite writer. And I, we called her my family cheerleader. And she was uh, to the absolute last moment. She never stopped telling me how proud she was of me. She loved me enough to embrace the things about me that weren't great, you know, which I think is what love often is sometimes, you know, anyone who's married is like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, to love people despite their flaws. And, and she found a way to find my flaws, something to celebrate too. She was magic like that. In, in reading the book, there's like a, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way, but like a childlike wonder that seemed to be part of Megan's yes. existence up until the day she died. And she it, she was also really little, and I am tall, so we were kind of funny together. Like, I'm a full head taller than she was. And she came to watch me teach one day when I was teaching creative writing at university here. And because she often had to wear kids' clothes, too, because they didn't, she didn't fit into women's clothing, there was, there was something quite childlike about her. And I think it's part of why I always felt like I needed to save her or protect her from something because she was so, even though she was the older sister by three years, I'd always wanted to look after her. But when it came to my heart, she was the one I often trusted to look after me. You know, I'm talking to you as we come close to the five-year anniversary of Megan's death. And after you've put it all down on all of it, but most of it down on paper, and now it's a book, it's out in the world, people are reading it. What feels different about grief now versus maybe the early days and weeks and months of it? I think part of it was shucking that idea that I would move on instead of just move forward with all these new things, all this new knowledge that comes with me. The heaviness has never left. I think I thought the heaviness would abate a little bit. And I don't know if it's because things just keep happening because this is life and things just keep happening in life. Or if because I move all the time, because I'm a military spouse, because I every place is home for two years, I don't have that one solidifying factor to keep returning to, which was her. When I think of what feels new, I think I mourned her for such a long time before she died. 
I mourned Megan a million times over in a million different ways because she gave me so many instances too. And I thought I had really lost her several times before, whether to addiction or to just general poor choices, um, to partners who treated her poorly. There was no competing with that. So I had had someone say to me a while ago, you know, if your sister had died before you guys repaired your relationship, you would have regretted it. And I don't think I would have. I grieved her properly, but I really loved her properly too. And um, I'm surprised by how comfortable I feel with grief. Not that it feels like home, but it feels like I'm surprised to welcome it in because it means I loved well. And that's this weird comfort to me because I don't think, while I wouldn't have regretted it if she had died before we had repaired our relationship because I did what I had to do to survive, I am surprised to find how comfortable I feel within the world of grief. It doesn't feel new. It feels like a thing I've known a long time, just in different forms. What is it like bringing grief into the military world? Since you are, you were a member of the military, you're a former military member, but you are a military spouse, so you're still in that realm. One of my first things I actually wrote was um, for my master's degree in nonfiction, or creative writing, sorry. And it was a nonfiction piece about my first military funeral in um, the Canadian Forces National Cemetery, which is in Ottawa. And all the headstones look alike. And they kept referring to the person by their rank instead of their name. And I remember being like, aren't they someone outside of this? You know, outside of just who they are here. I bring so much more tenderness to my creative life than I ever was allowed to have in the military. I don't want to say death got normalized in the time of Afghanistan, but it was like I went to military funerals where not to say people weren't emotional, but part of it was we're on parade, we're, we're in uniform, You there's a certain level of decorum you have to keep. And I've realized I don't owe anyone an explanation for my sadness. And, and that's why if in the grocery store I'm sobbing hysterically, I will just own that shit and I have no explaining necessary. <laughs> I am here for it because it feels like a badge of honor now instead of something with which to carry an element of shame. I lean into it a little bit more, a lot more. <laughs> I love the idea of you being sort of like a grief rebel in this military oh, community. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. Oh, a grief rebel. That'll be my new title. That'll be my new title now. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though, because I see my husband still serving. And it's already such a different world from when I left it 10 years ago. We're making a lot more room for different kinds of feelings in different ways. So maybe it's just one start, you know? Um, it always takes someone to have a good cry in public before we all feel like it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually me, but still, you know, I'm open to all of it. <laughs> well, Kelly, as we come to the end of our conversation, what else? What else do you want? listeners to know what else feels important in this moment to share? 
Um, I mean, I always say it's okay to not be okay. I think that's one of those mantras when it comes to mental health. I think that sometimes we expect people to know how to handle us. And we expect to know once we're once we're familiar with grief, how to move around other people who are in the thick of it. And I remember thinking, I will so know what to do now. I'll be like ready. I am not ready because every grief is so different and individual. I think we look for stories that share similar threads and themes because we are a storytelling animal. And it's a way we seek answers is to settle with other people's stories. And so this is just one story, the one that I wrote. And you'll have your story too. And so I often say that the more stories like this that we share, you know, this podcast being in existence that I mentioned to you, I turned to because I was like, how do I, how do I keep going? How do I keep moving in a world that doesn't have this brilliant human being in it? And the answer is I keep going because she's always in it. So we don't ever lose those people. We carry those stories within us. Um, some of us release the stories and give them to someone new. But um, it's I, re I don't believe it's ever been a sense of having to say goodbye to her. And I'm not a religious person, so I would... I was surprised to find I didn't feel like I'd lost her. Sure, she's not here, and I can't talk to her, but I don't feel like I've lost her in any way. So I guess it's to say you get to own your own story around your grief, and there's a lot of power that comes with that too, whether you choose to share it, whether you choose to internalize it, whether you choose to give it a home elsewhere. I think Megan would like the little home I found for it. Well, Kelly, for listeners who want to connect with you or kind of keep up with your writing and the work that you're doing, where should they head? My website is Kelly S as in Sarah Thompson.com. There's a famous Kelly S. Thompson who writes Marvel comics. That is not me. <laughs> Just sorry to disappoint everyone. Um, and I'm on Instagram at Kelly S. Thompson writer, which is where mostly it's photos of books I'm reading and my dog Ham. If you need a mood boost from your grief, ham being vacuumed every week is sort of like the most reason people come to see me on Instagram. Um, but my books are everywhere you can find books and um, on Amazon and all that jazz at indie bookstores near you. I love nothing more than emails from people who want to share their stories. It brings me a lot of joy because I think we find we're always a little less alone when we're, when we're doing that story sharing. So thank you for having me, Jenna. Yeah, well, Kelly, thank you again for being on Grief Out Loud, for finding us in the first place, for your book, Still I Cannot Save You, and for yeah, the work you're doing to make the world more uh, receptive to crying in the grocery store aisle, or yeah. to whatever that tenderness looks like. So <laughs> thank you again for being part of Grief Out Loud. Thank you. And listeners out there, I say it each and every single time, thank you for being part of our community, for making the show mean something, for reaching out to me, to emailing me at griefoutloud at dougie.org, which is D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also our main website where you can find all of our downloadable resources, information about our local programming, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. Thanks as always to the Chester Stefan Endowment Fund for supporting this podcast. And we hope you'll join us again next time.